Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I am passionate about my calling. I am passionate about malaria in Africa. This is a passion. I'm following my passion. And then, you know, some guy in Ohio is just sitting there playing his video games like, you know, I don't know, I don't really have a passion. So here's a very embarrassing story. Like, this is one of those classic, like, altitude kind of things. Like, I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm about These to. are the only <laughs> stories. <laughs> hey, Derek, this is James Altucher. Can you hear me? Oh, my God, you have, like, a radio voice. Your, your voice <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> Well, thank you for calling. <laughs> Seriously, are you using like special equipment or something? Like, what's going on over there? It's it's this big Darth Vader mask that uh, you know I'm speaking through right now. No, uh, just I don't know, a mic, a mic, yeah, a a blue Yeti mic. Uh, Hi, it's great. How are you doing? Good to finally talk to you. I yeah. spent so many hours with you in my head, whether through your books or articles and all that stuff that uh, I'm beaming right now. It's an honor to finally talk to you. Well, probably because I steal so liberally from what you write <laughs> that you're reading kind of regurgitated words. How can I take what Derek said and reword it so it sounds like me? <laughs> I mean, so seriously, I, your book, Anything You Want, 40 Lessons for a New Kind of Entrepreneur is in my probably top three top. I mean, I would give this to anybody starting a business. It's such a great book. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, you and I are definitely kindreds, writing kindreds, because, yeah, I felt the same thing whenever I was reading your stuff. It's like, this guy writes just like me. It's, yeah. No, I think, and, I, I actually think you have a little bit more, there's almost this kind of like Zen minimalism style to your approach to both writing and entrepreneurship. You take these like very complicated concepts, like, how should I sell my company? And you boil it down to two pages. And it's just 
great. Like this is people write entire books and give like TED talks on this, and you're like, nah. I just it, do I care enough to sell it? Okay, I'm selling it. <laughs> well, I guess I'm just you know whittling out all those other moments and just sharing that uh, the key moment. So I got to ask you something. Sure. Do you did you ever read that Esquire magazine article about radical honesty? Uh, yes, because AJ Jacobs, the author of yeah. that, was has been on my podcast and we've spoken about it. And it's funny. I don't believe in radical honesty. Do you? Mm. I think it's like nudity. I think it's you know it's to be used in the right situation like, for the right people. Exactly. Like but, I believe in sincerity and transparency, but not in vomiting. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I was thinking that you to me sometimes feel like radical fault admitting. That even like when I yes. just uh, yesterday, I realized I didn't know that you had uh, done another uh, podcast with Ramit. And right there at the beginning of the podcast, it, it's like you're so unprofessional. Right? Like <laughs> you kind of, you're talking, you're kind of saying, oh, uh, I, I should have had that before we spoke, but I forgot. Oh, well. And I, I so admire the way that it seems like you are almost finding ways to admit your faults at every turn. Like, like such a raw nerve that to me, it kind of seems like a brilliant way of, of getting the world, not getting the world, asking the world to love you in a way. Well, because I, it's like, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, you're like, continue. <laughs> so, uh, Showing your weaknesses, right? It's like it feels like you are always showing the world your weaknesses. Well, and to me, the underlying message is: if you love all of this, you really love me. Well, I think also people don't give themselves permission to admit their mistakes, their flaws. Everybody wants to be on a pedestal, or else they think people won't like them. And right. I'm sort of afraid of the pedestal. I think people want the reverse, and I want the reverse. I want people to know right off the bat that when they're dealing with me, bad things can happen. <laughs> and <laughs> and I one thing is, and this is this is back to the radical honesty. I ne I'll say bad things about myself all day long, but I'll never say bad things about others. So I'll never put mm -hmm. anyone else down. I'll never be honest about. I, not it's not that I'll be dishonest about it, but I'll never be transparent about other people's faults because it's not my business. I like that. So back in the 90s, uh, there used to be a great magazine called Musician Magazine. And they would include, I think like uh, every few months, they would include a sampler CD along with a magazine of, here's 16 artists you've never heard before, one track each. And I used to love to get this CD and just put it on in the background while I was doing other things. And one day there was this one track that jumped out at me because the singer uh, was singing... Uh, uh, used to be I could go up to Barstow for the night Find some crossroad trucker, demonstrate his might These days it seems like nowhere's far enough away And her, her voice cracked and then she goes So I'm leaving Las Vegas today, leaving Las Vegas And I remember when her voice cracked like that I, like, I stopped what I was doing Because I was just listening in the background It's like, what? She left that in. That was fucking brilliant. And then I, it made me pick up the CD. And who was that? And it turns out it was Sheryl Crow. She was an unknown artist at the time. And I so admired that decision to leave in that crack in her voice because it's like that little fault is what 
made me like her. I mean, there were whatever, 15 other artists on that CD that I will never remember, but I remember that one that left in that crack. And so you, to me, are kind of like that with your well, writing. Well, it's interesting you- because this this relates actually to a lot. It's funny you pick up on that with the with Sheryl Crow and let's even say with my writing, because this is so much what your book is about. And, and, and it's interesting, it's what music is about too, because people, and tell me if you disagree with this, and, and by the way, I just want to just get the bio out of the way. You started CD Baby, blah, blah, blah. It was the, one of the first websites to sell music. You sold it. It was great. You write books about entrepreneurship. I want to get back to what I was saying just a second ago, which is author, people often buy what they view as authenticity over what might be good music. So, for instance, the other 15 singers in that out in that CD might have been good music, but what attracted you was authenticity. And you look yeah. and and I wonder if you agree with this. Like take someone like Kurt Cobain. He was so authentic, say with Nirvana, in particular, you look at the songs he covered from like the 30s and the 20s, like these really authentic uh, musicians from from way back. And then maybe he couldn't come to grips with authenticity as he became like a mega success. And this plagued him in some sense. And I wonder if you agree with that. And and what is authenticity to you? Ooh, big question. Because your book and your on your style of entrepreneurship is so different. You were successful, wildly successful, but your style of entrepreneurship is so different from what, let's say, the typical, uh, you know, here's how you be a big success type of book that it really strikes me as as your own brand of authenticity, and that's what essentially gave you a happy ending and a happy life. A happy ending sounds bad, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's see. Kurt Cobain first. Um, authenticity. Yeah, you're you're right. That's a good one. Um, but and the idea that he couldn't continue being authentic. I don't know that that suicide really pissed me off. If we just if we believe the reasons around it, like I hate the fame and all that, because you know at any given point he could cut his hair and apply for a job at a Burger King in Iowa City and nobody would ever believe he was Kurt Cobain. You know what I mean? Like, you can always disappear from fame. Um, but somehow nobody, you don't want to, though. Like, being, I don't think that would have been <laughs> authentic to him either. Like, he he was aiming for the fame. Uh, it's almost like he didn't know what to do when he got there. And 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 I'm not yeah. saying what he was saying or the reasons for his suicides were 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 good or bad. I'm just wondering if somehow, you know, he lost that drive for authenticity because he was, he, he was past it. Right. Wow. And the same thing happens in, it, like, actually. let's say rap music. Like, take, I don't know if you listen to rap, but, like, take mm-hmm. uh, anybody. The difference between Drake and some up-and-coming, you know, rapper from the Bronx in New York. Like, people claim, even though his music might be good or bad, whatever your opinions are, people say he's not authentic. So a lot of people don't buy it for that reason because he doesn't come out of, you know, the hood. And, uh, you know, again, people judge music not necessarily on the quality of the music often, but on the authenticity of it. And it strikes me that your approach to entrepreneurship, as as which approaches, which techniques you use, you determine more by its authenticity rather than whether it would drive customers. Hmm. You know, I was listening to the interview you did with uh, Nassim Taleb. And but, but one so, of our favorites. I noticed you have Anti Fragile is one of your favorite books. Oh man, I just I love the way that guy thinks. Um, because 
it so often comes down to these core values. It's almost like zooming out from the world a bit and finding some principle that stands above all these other details and then focusing on that principle and then deciding, well, let's just focus on this principle and extrapolate that and see where that principle goes. Yes. And I think that uh, is what I I often try to do with well, with life, but of course then that comes out with entrepreneurship too, is like, okay, wait, why am I really doing any of this? What is this really about? Let me just zoom out and, and focus on this core principle. Now I'll extract from that principle. And then of course, what what you when you extract from a core principle, it comes out being very different than all the usual bullshit that people do. Like like give me an example that I don't I don't fully understand. Okay. Um let me think. Well, like, like, let's take in your business. You, you describe at one point you were telling investors you didn't want to get bigger, you wanted to get smaller. So what was the core principle? What was the, the extraction from that? Ah, okay. Then to me, that was like, the core principle there was, I like, uh, I like being happy. <laughs> and one way I found to be happy is to have less responsibilities, to, for things to be lighthearted and fun um, makes me happy. And so the idea of doing an IPO and suddenly, you know, being beholden to uh, stockholders and all that, well, that's not fun. Why would I do that? It's like, well, you could make more money that way, but what's the point of making money is to be happy. And if it would make me unhappy to have so much responsibility, then I'd rather not make more money. I'd rather just focus on the happiness. Here's a better example is focusing almost entirely on the customer and what's best for them, then I think, well, are my customers wanting me to do an IPO? Like when I get a bunch of, uh, <laughs> what is the, the the suggestion box, you know, that classic, uh, the wooden box with a little slat on the top and, you know, drop your suggestions in here. Right, none of them would uh, say, you must IPO now for my yes. little CD. <laughs> I thought that was a great kind of, you have this metaphor throughout that like, your it was really interesting that like your customers don't really want you to expand they'd actually want you to be they want they will their ideal dream is for them to be your only customer right exactly and so why am i why would i do this then for that i can't say i'm doing it for their sake am i doing it for my sake no i'd be happier with less responsibility so i think that's what i mean about core principles that kind of zooming out and saying why am i doing any of this yeah so 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 and let's get to that. So it seems like I'm gonna I'm gonna use one of these kind of like um, catchphrases to describe what you did and the the theme of it. It's almost like you participated in what I'll call the favor economy. So it seems like a lot of your ideas, ranging from CD Baby to even what you're doing now with now now now, is you you start off with I'm gonna do a favor for somebody, and then <laughs> if if people respond to that favor and want more, then suddenly you say, ah, I can scale this into a business or a platform or something that I want to spend more time on because you personally like doing favors for people. So you created a a buy now button for yourself, then you did it for your CDs, then you did it for a friend, then more people started con- contacting you and you realize, ah, I have a business. So this idea of of verifying or validating that a business idea is good seems to be the method seems to be do a favor for someone see if or do it for yourself first so you learn how to do it do it as a favor for someone else see if more people ask and voila you have a business that costs you no money to create is this yeah. does that seem kind of accurate 
Yeah, that's a good description. I love it. That when, by doing favors for people, it implies that people are asking you to do those favors. And to me, the key is the asking. So um, bluntly put, I kind of think that you shouldn't start a business unless people are asking you to. You do the things that people are asking you to help them with. Those are the things you do. And, um, and you know, other than that, I guess I'm, I'm a reluctant businessman. I don't try to make businesses. I just kind of answer the calls for help when they come in and then see if I can you know, systemize and turn that call for help into something I could help other people with. And admittedly, that's one style. Like nobody was asking Larry Page, hey, can you make the eighth failed search engine out there? <laughs> Oh, right. maybe they were asking, can you make a search engine with slightly better results than Alta Vista? I don't know. But um right. or or maybe he in his mind was asking that. So so it it helped him. So he figured maybe this will help others and he saw by the usage and so on. But uh how does someone let's say I'm I always use this example. I'm I'm sitting in my cubicle somewhere, I'm unhappy working for somebody else. How do and, and it, how do I know what to what favors to do for people first or what to do for myself that other people say hey can you do that for me cuz you in, say in the book it took you 12 years of trial and error trying different things before ah i hit upon doing something for myself that other people asked me to do for them so this 12 year period was a long time right okay so i've been dying to ask you about this um the idea of choose yourself that when I look back at my life and what was successful and what wasn't, it seems that whenever I was focused on me, 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 uh, like all my years making music, uh, it's me up on stage singing my thoughts into a microphone, uh, spotlights on me, I'm out there promoting me. <laughs> and it's all about me. I did that for 15 years and it was hard. It was, you know, it just felt like always an uphill battle. I had some success, but for the most part, it was hard. But on the other hand, as soon as I turned my attention 100% to others, said, okay, forget me. How can I help you? And that was like the, the big idea behind CD Baby when it was just completely putting myself into the service of others and just completely forgetting myself. I cease to exist. I am here solely for your service. Then boom, that's where all the success seems to happen uh, repeatedly in my life. So that's part of why I have a problem with the idea of, say, lifestyle design, where I hear too many people talk about like, well, what kind of life do I want? I want to be in a hammock on a beach and I only want to work from these hours. I want this and I want that. And this is the kind of life that I want. Why isn't it working out for me? And I think, well, it's because you're focusing entirely on yourself. On the other hand, if you just forget all of this self-pleasuring and focus entirely on others, you might find the world rewards you more. Well, it's funny because you, know you mentioned earlier um, you know, kind of the core values that you had, and one was you wanted to be happy. How do, it seems like there's a gray area between coming up with your core values as opposed to helping other people achieve their core values. Right? Yeah, it's it's kind of you have to serve others within the limits of what you're able to sustainably do. Right? You can't do something that makes you absolutely miserable. That's like the you know the engine that that breaks down without oil. I. I 
I like the metaphor that happiness is like the oil in the engine. You know, you need it for the engine to continue running. Uh, you can't do something you're unable to do. But within the realm of what you're able to sustainably do, if you focus entirely on others, that's where the world seems to reward you the most. Yeah, that's really true. So, so uh, you know, I imagine when you were performing music in 15 years, many things were getting in your way. One is venues had to like you, customers had to like your music, uh, and distribution. you found out distribution companies had to like you. So some guy who just... I don't know, graduated high school or college, had to say, okay, this is the guy we're going to distribute. And you you depended on whether he had a good day or not that, that day, whether he was going <laughs> right. to like you. And so the whole thing right. with Choose Yourself is I don't want anybody, I don't want to have to l- give hand over my destiny and my self-esteem to other people who I don't know. And so when people are coming to you in this kind of favor-based approach, you're not outsourcing your self-esteem to anybody Mm, okay. And so and so there it's kind of you created this very like instead of a, relying on oh can Apple put me on the front page so I sell a lot of CDs you've created CD baby to sell your CDs. So you eliminated the outsourcing of your music self-esteem to other big large companies. Got it. Okay, that's a nice uh, that's a nice way of putting it. I and then that. you helped other people do that and and part of the thing was that's that guided your values throughout. Okay, you can't pay for placement. We're not going to have ads. You can't pay for any special treatment. Uh, you, you know, uh, let me ask you this. Right now, we're, we're, we supposedly have this long tail where everybody could sell, you know, 50 albums a month, no matter how bad you are or where you are in the long tail. But what's ended up happening in reality is that Amazon has actually, or, or Apple has created our choices for us. Like, oh, if you like this, you now might like this. And if you're not in their algorithm, you're actually further down on the on the long tail. Like this kind of um, democracy of choice has created less choice in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, because it's like, how are you going to find that artist number 1.5 million that's buried in there that Apple is not recommending to you? Right. And, yeah. and so how does that, how does an artist now kind of overcome that? Um, good question. It's, it changes the techniques, like say, for example, um, using a, sorry, this is just like one little, uh, one little hack, one little quirk, but it worked really well. Um, some of my bestsellers at CD Baby were the ones that did one cover song on their album of a song that had never been covered before. So you can go to iTunes and use their search engine and do a little research for all of your favorite songs, right? And then when you find one that only has one version of it, all right, uh, whatever it may be, I can't even think of an example right now because any example I would give would would be one that already has lots of covers. But say, you, you think back through the songs you love, you find one and the only search result is the original recording. Well, boom, that's a great song to go do a cover version of because now in the future, uh, you do a cover version of it, you get it up on iTunes and anybody searching for that song in the future will only have two versions, the original and yours. And they'll say, wow, who is this one? And I found many times that that gets people interested in the whole artist. So here's a specific example. Artist named Melissa Rebronia from Toronto did a cover version of, was it called Waterwall by Oasis? I'm your waterwall. Wonderwall, is that what that song was called? I'm not sure. So she did a cover version of that and... It was, you know, like track number nine on her full album of other songs that did not sound like that. 
But her whole album sold really well because that's how people found her in the mix as they were searching for Wonderwall, um, found Oasis and who's this? Melissa Rabronia. Oh, wow, let's check out her other track. So there are things like that. You know, the rules change because that would not have been the case 20 years ago. Uh, you didn't walk into a physical record store and say, show me every album that has a, <laughs> a version of the song Wonderwall on it. But you know, th- that's a very powerful approach. I always think... Uh, no matter whether you're a painter, a musician, a writer, or even a businessman, if you take what's already proven to resonate throughout the decades or the centuries or even the millennia, if you take that and do something slightly unique with it, you win. So for instance, whether or not you're a fan of Justin Bieber, and some people are and many people aren't, if Justin Bieber did a cover of John Lennon's Imagine, bam, that would win. Yeah, yeah. So so it's the same type of approach. Like if you take what resonates with time and, you know, multiply it somehow or or do it. Like I do that with my writing. I'll find obscure stuff written like a thousand years ago and take the ideas from it and sort of rewrite it in a modern context. And it works. Mm. Those are my most popular posts. Hey, so let me ask you a question about giving advice. This has been on my mind a lot lately because... You know, I, I did Tim Ferriss's podcast in mid-December, and I got a bunch of people contacting me after that, asking my advice on things. So for the last couple months, I've been giving a lot of advice. And I find that my, my advice is so tainted uh, because it's a reaction against my surroundings, I think. Like, sometimes, you know, somebody will ask me a question about what they should do with their career, and I... I give them my best advice by email and I hit send. And sometimes afterwards I wonder like, why did I give that advice? Like, why did I say that? And I think it's often a reaction to what I feel is not said enough, right? So because... What's an example? I feel a lot of people are saying this, like, quit your job, quit your job, quit your job. And it almost seems to be the unanimous opinion is that everyone on earth should now quit their job. And so when people email me saying, I think I, might, I want to quit my job, then I feel it's almost like my duty to say, well, actually, maybe you shouldn't quit your job. Maybe there are reasons to keep your job. They say, well, I can't believe you're saying this. <laughs> but, but I'm saying it because it feels like everybody else is saying the opposite, right? But then I remembered that, say, if I was in a different environment, say, if I was working at whatever, HP, I was working at a big corporation and, and nobody was quitting their job and everybody thought that anybody who quits their job is crazy, well, then I'd probably be giving the advice to quit your job because it seems that everyone around me is saying, don't quit your job. So I'm, I'm giving voice to the, the lesser heard advice, right? So I wonder sometimes how much of your advice, like say, say if suddenly everyone in the world was taking your advice and everyone in the world was was choosing themselves and making decisions like that, if it became ubiquitous, do you think you might be tempted to advise the opposite? You know, that's a, a lot of people always ask me that. Like, let's say I say, never buy a home because uh, it's a bad experience, whatever. Yeah. If, everybody, if everybody in the world followed this advice, nobody would be buying homes, the economy would collapse, and, and so on. So the first thing I always know is, it's never the case that everyone is going to follow your advice. <laughs> So that will never happen. So I never think of it that way. The other thing is, advice is autobiography. Like the best, no one wants somebody from a pedestal. They want to know, okay, I had this problem. Here's how I solved it. So that's really your advice is it's all coming from your own 
autobi- <laughs> advice is autobiography. So here's the lottery numbers I played. Maybe these will work for you, kid. Well, and guess who else did that? Buddha always said, "You could." Here's what I do every morning. You can either try it or not. Like he didn't mm. say do this. He just said, "This is what I do." And I'm not trying to be all Buddhist here. I'm just giving it as, an, as one example of something that's resonated through the millennia. He just mm. said, "This is simply what I do uh, every day." You don't have to do it. You could be a king or a merchant or whatever, but this is what I do to become happy. And uh, some people followed it and some people didn't. So I think I think qualifying things by saying, look, this is what I did. So for instance, take the job thing. I stayed at my job at HBO um, for 18 months after I started my business on the side. So even if there's a lot of reasons to quit a job, you have to do it carefully. And here's what I did. Um, so that's what I usually do. But 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 it's interesting though you bring that up. I know you answered five thousand emails in a month. Like, why did you did you feel obligated to to answer everybody? Was it stressful to do it? No, I mean, well, it was it was a lot of work, but I wasn't complaining. It was fascinating. Uh, it's every writer's dream, right, to have your finger on the pulse of what people want to know. You know, so it was like. Here's 5,000. Actually, in the end, it was, I think I got over 6,500 emails last time I counted from just from that show. And what was the pulse? Like, what do you think? Because uh, I find in those situations, there is a common question. And what was the theme? What is the zeitgeist right now from what, from what you saw? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know if I can narrow it down to just one. The, the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of like, I want to quit my job and follow my dream, or I have this dream that I'm not following. Also, this, I don't know what my passion is. That's a huge one. Like, I haven't found my passion yet. I don't know what is my purpose, what is my calling. I don't know what my passion is. And I think that's a dangerous one, because I believe that we've built up that word passion to be so deep. I kind of think like um, Romeo and Juliet, that sometimes those big, giant love stories can be really dangerous because they make you think like, okay, kids, this is what love looks like. Do you want to know what love is? Love is, you know, drinking potion and killing yourself and jumping off of balconies and stabbing others and all in the name of love. If it's nothing, if it's less than that, that's not really love because that's what love really looks like. You know, And so passion, I think, is this word that gets... Uh, used like Romeo and Juliet, like I had a passion, man. I am passionate about my calling. I am passionate about you know malaria in Africa. This is a passion. I'm following my passion. And then you know <laughs> some guy in Ohio is just sitting there playing his video games. Like oh, I, don't know, I don't really have a passion. But instead, if you just follow the little things that interest you. Like you just notice on a day-to-day basis what you're drawn towards more. Then you just keep doing that more and more and you find that you get kind of driven by it eventually, that these things grow slowly, kind of like good relationships uh, often grow slowly. You know, it doesn't have to be this boom, love at first sight, uh, that it can be this thing that just grows and grows. But if you were thinking like, that doesn't look like passion. You know, that doesn't look like love. I didn't freak the fuck out the second we met, so it must not be love. It must not be passion. Then uh, you overlook some of the best things in life. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. 
Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? By letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community and I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. we're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and its unparalleled off-road ability as well as its robust interior are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. 
HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It sounds like your career, if you look at it and slice and dice it in, in various ways, is very much like that in the, in the sense that you had a theme rather than a passion. So your theme was music. You performed, you're an employee at Warner Chapel, and then finally, after a lot of trial and error, you learned programming, you started selling music online, and that turned into CD Baby, which finally, in this favor economy way, uh, worked out. So... Uh, it it seems like still having a theme, like you say, noticing different things, but then what can you do within that larger core theme or value or whatever? That's kind of a, a what what people should be asking, perhaps. Right. So right. The, the I love that you brought that up. The theme can you can have a core theme in your life that often you don't notice until many years have passed, and you notice that a lot of the things that have interested you the most have something in common. So. Check this out. I'm kind of changing the subject, but kind of... Go for it. Pivoting on that point. <laughs> that uh, I was working with this consultant coach dude once that he wanted to get to what was my core value. And he said, well, uh, I, I said something about programming. He said, well, why do you like that? And I, I said, well, because of this. And he said, well, why is that important to you? I said, um, because of this. And he said, okay, well, then why is that important to you? He kept drilling down. It was kind of like the five whys, but uh, this version that was trying to get to, like, why is that important to you? What's the core value of that? Why does that matter to you? And so he got down to what was supposed to be the final value, but to me it came down to two, that my two most important values were learning and creating and he said, okay, now of those two, which one is more important to you ultimately? I was like, well, no, you can't reduce it any further. He's like, no, you have to figure out which one of those two is more important to you. Is it ultimately about the learning or ultimately about the creating? And I thought about it for a bit and I said, you know what? This is a fault of the English language. Because, you know, sometimes there, in other languages, there are um, words that take a whole paragraph to say in English, but you know, in, in Portuguese they may have a word, uh, is it surare or something like that, that, that takes a whole paragraph to explain it in English. But in Portuguese, that's just one word. And I thought, 
you can't say that I haven't figured out my core value because I have. My core value is learning for the sake of creating, for the sake of learning, for the sake of creating. It's just that we don't have a single word for that. But to me, that is one core theme, is that my whole life, I love learning things for the sake of creating things, which is for the sake of learning things, which then is for the sake of creating things. Like that loop is a thing to me that should be one word. That's my theme. So so it's interesting. Let, let, me, let me take that for a second because a lot of people love to create. There's two reasons maybe someone loves to create because there's that instant feeling of like, ah, and you, you mentioned this, how do you grade yourself? You have a, a section on that in your book. And so some people might grade themselves in two ways when they create. One is that feeling of, ah, I know this is good and I feel good about it, so now I'm going to release this into the world or not, and then I'm going to move on to the next thing I create. Other people might create because they want other people to like what they created. So and there's a little bit of a little bit more self-interest in that where other people have to like it in order for me to feel uh, validated about what I created. So so there could be an additional why there, which is why do you love to create? The so hypothetically, those examples you just gave, imagine somebody uh, I think of this as ACDC. ACDC has been writing the same song since the 70s. Every time a new ACDC album comes out, you know it is going to sound pretty much exactly like the ones they've been putting out since 1975. You know, so that is creating, 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 creating. They have written hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of songs, dozens of albums. But I wouldn't say that hardly any of those past the first two were a real learning experience. So that to me is the uh, the poster child for creating without learning. And then learning without creating to me are like those people that learn a bunch of stuff but never do anything with it, right? And there are plenty of examples of that. So what you just said, I like those examples you gave of uh, you create because it's something that makes you happy once it's done. Like, ah, look, I made this great, painting that's just the way I want it to be, and you want the feedback from the world. Um, yeah, but the, but learning, uh, sorry, creating for the sake of learning something or using your creating as a learning process uh, can be an additional need that doesn't, doesn't replace those other ones. It's, yes, I also want the world's feedback and all that stuff, all these other reasons we create, but to me it also needs to have some element of, of personal growth and learning in the sake of creating. You know, it's funny because I deal with this with my own writing. I see what people liked so much in 2010 and 2011, and sometimes I feel this urge, okay, I have to write again a post like that. Right, you yes. Know, as opposed to finding like another way to reinvent myself or re- reinvent the writing or, or do something new. Like how, how do you, re- I mean, you've clearly reinvented yourself several times like you were, uh, you, you focused on your being a musician and music, which I'm sure you, you still do, but you did it 100% for a while. Then you focus on CD Baby 100% for a decade. How mm-hmm. do you continue to reinvent yourself and reinvent this, I'm going to call it passion, but reinvent this passion you have for, for music and creation? Okay. Uh, I'm going to tell you something I think I've never talked about publicly. That... Um, well, for one, this isn't the thing yet. We'll get to that. Um, but I love that we have role models, public role models. To me, um, some music legends have been great role models in how they 
uh, shaped their career path. And specifically, I'm thinking of Bob Dylan, Miles Davis, and let's say David Bowie, where um, Bob Dylan, uh, most, some of you know, maybe not all of you know, did this thing where up until, I forget what year it was, like 1965, he was a, a very famous folk artist, like the most famous folk artist, but folk was was uh, kind of more in a purist sense. Like it was folk as opposed to rock in the time. So it's like just the guy with his guitar, all acoustic man being completely real because it's it's acoustic, not electric. And so then he went on stage at the Newport Folk Festival. He was the headliner and he was as big as can be and the curtains open and he steps out with a rock band and a Stratocaster in his hand hmm. and jaws dropped and somebody in the crowd yells, Judas! And it was just such blasphemy. Bob Dylan wow, is going I, I electric. I didn't know this story. You don't? Oh man, sorry. Okay, so um, uh, I guess, just, yeah, as, as a musician, it's just like, you know, these, these are like the the tales we grow up with. Everybody knows this story if you're a musician. So to me, this was like, wow, what a bold move he made is to give up on this thing that he had created because he said he felt that he had painted himself into a corner, that he needed to break expectations to continue to grow creatively, right? So Miles Davis did a very similar thing. Um, Again, he was known as this uh, bebop trumpet player that was played with Charlie Parker and... uh, and so everybody knew him as this bebop uh, trumpet jazz musician. And then he started doing albums like, uh, uh, what is it called? Was so what? Um, kind of Blue, which was shocking at first in the fact that it had like almost no chords. The whole thing is just in D. The bridge goes up to E flat and then back to D again. It was like the opposite of everything jazz was about at the time, where it was all about these quick jazz changes and changes in chords every two beats. And for him to go completely against that and then later do things like you know, play with an electric trumpet and, uh, and all that, again, it was um, blowing off expectations uh, or, or particularly knowing he was going to anger people, but knowing that this was something that was necessary for him to grow creatively. It's like, I've been there, I've done that. Now it's time to force myself to change. And then, of course, the David Bowie examples where he'll just kind of, he'll be something for a few years and go completely into that persona for a few years and then change persona. It's just like a creative exercise. So these to me were, you know, these stories were legend and they shape the way I think about things that uh, you do something for a while and once you feel that you've hit the... uh, you finished your creative expression of that idea, then it's almost your duty to force yourself to change. I, I agree with that, and I, I want to pose one counterexample. And so this is a, a great guy, so it's not a bad counterexample. Scott Adams, who makes the Dilbert cartoon, he's been doing Dilbert for 25 years or more. And I asked him, why are you still doing Dilbert? You've clearly achieved financial success. It wasn't necessarily... Uh, this passion from youth that you had to like draw this cartoon about a guy in a cubicle. You know, you've done it. It's beautiful. You've you've, you've created a whole work of of a body of 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 art here. Uh, and he mentioned that he has a whole mach- machine to sustain now. Like a lot of people depend on this cartoon coming out every day. So what do you do if you're kind of tied to the the responsibility of something? Oh, I you just say sorry. I wish you the best. 
<laughs> I would have done right. it the Bloom County way, where it's like he he did. Um, Bloom County was huge, I guess, twenty years yeah, ago. Yeah, breathed, and just he did it and did it and did it until he felt like okay, I've I've done what I wanted to do. Or what was it, Kelvin and Hobbes too, right? Like just I hit my point. I'm good with that. And sorry, I know that this is going to put some people out of work, but I know you're going to find other jobs. And just creatively, I need to make a change now. So and and. And then there's the other example, which is, um, and I'm trying, and this is where it's hard to find an example, but there's the fear when you reinvent that, oh my gosh, I just became a one, I'm going to become a one-hit wonder. Uh, yes, yeah, okay, so thank you for, for prompting me to the, the thing I don't think I've ever spoken about publicly, is when I sold CD Baby in 2008, it was actually a really dark time for me. I, you can read between the lines in my book, and I, I toned it down because it was one of those things that I felt like, eh, this is just, I'm being a little too personal here. Uh, this isn't, I'm trying to just keep focused on what's useful to others to read, and now I'm getting a little bit into a sob story. So I had like a couple chapters that I cut out because they were a little too me, me, me. But um, it was a really hard time for me. It was basically like CD Baby kind of ended with a, with a mutiny, Right? Like this company that I started and all these people that I hired, just something went kind of fucky in the, the internal culture. And it's like they were kind of making me walk the plank. And it was just sad and just made me want to hide from the world like forever. Like, dude, I was seriously looking into how to legally change my name and change my citizenship and move to some other part of the world and just disappear. Like I would tell my family and, and two or three dear friends where I was, but otherwise I just wanted to start anew with a whole new life and have nothing to do with the other one because I just, I just wanted to hide. I hated how much responsibility I had with CD Baby and I just, ugh, I just wanted to just slough off the whole world, right? And I stayed in that mindset for about a year, um, of really planning on changing my name, dropping off of the grid entirely. Right? I, I was reading. There were there, you can find a couple books out there called "How to Disappear." I read them. I was. I, I was I've read that book too. That's a great. That's a, <laughs> that book actually has beaten me out on Amazon occasionally. Like sometimes they promote <laughs> it again, and it's like pops up onto the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Great title. Um, yeah. So, so it was on a plane ride to. New York. I was going out to New York for a friend's wedding, and I was reading the book called um, "48 Laws of Power," I think, and it was talking about uh, accepting uh, accepting public fame or recognition as a responsibility, like take on the role of of public attention. And I thought about this, and I thought. Yeah, it is kind of the chicken shit thing to do to run away and hide and change my name and go eh, plug my ears, shove off the world like I don't I'm going to disappear. And I was like, I could probably step up to the responsibility. I can I can man up to what I've created and step into the spotlight and and do something worthy there. And okay, so here's the key point is that for a year or so, I had felt completely unmotivated. Like Every day, I kind of had no reason to wake up. I, I had millions of dollars in the bank. I had absolute freedom. I wasn't even in a relationship at the time. Just at any given point, I could just be anywhere, do anything. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to be anywhere. It's like there is such a thing as too much freedom, and I had it <laughs> in that moment, and or for this whole year, this this strange, lethargic, exploratory year with no uh, no drive. And then on that plane ride. 
I had this idea. I was like, I think I want to be a TED speaker or like not just a TED, that's just a, a uh, kind of a, a symbol to me, but I want to be like a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy. Because at that time, as you prompted, I felt that I was a one-trick pony, that like my gravestone was going to say, uh, here lies Derek Sivers, he made CD Baby, not much since. <laughs> that's, that's how it felt, like I had peaked, right? And this was the first idea I had that felt like it went beyond that peak. Like if I could really be like a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy where, where Ted invites me to speak on stage and get into that world instead of just my world of musicians, like, wow, that's kind of inspiring. And for the first time I felt inspired to action. Like now I had a worthy goal that, that made me jump into action. And I love that definition of like a good goal is one that actually changes your actions in the moment. Like right now, goals are not about the future. Goals are about changing the present moment, changing your present actions. So suddenly I was inspired as hell to like, I started writing like six to eight hours a day and, and working on my thoughts and chiseling them down to make them surprising and cutting and succinct so I could make this point in four paragraphs, short enough that I knew everybody would read it and forward it to their friends and not procrastinate to read it. And I put so much work into this and then, yeah, within nine months, uh, I was speaking at the main stage TED in front of Bill Gates and Larry Page and all these intimidating people. And then I, I did it three times. And then, uh, then people now know me more from TED and come up to me and say, so what did you do before TED? Hmm. <laughs> and like, well, I had this little music store, you know, you probably haven't heard of it. But uh, yeah, that was my that was my reinvention of 2010. And uh, it's interesting because, again, I think what separates your talks and your book out from anything else is this this authenticity about what it's really like to be an entrepreneur, or not what it's really like to be an entrepreneur, what it was really like for you to be an entrepreneur. And and you kind of, like you said, whittled it down to what your core values were and how you implemented them. And I guess I wonder, I feel so inauthentic at times, even though I try to be authentic. And and people think of me as authentic, but it's very difficult. And it doesn't seem like it was that difficult for you. Like, how... How does somebody sort of reach inside and figure out their authenticity? Is it this kind of drilling down on the why, or what is it? Wait, I'm sorry. How are you? I got to hear about you for a second. How are you being inauthentic? I I sometimes feel like a people pleaser. Like I have to, I want to be entertaining. I want this podcast to be entertaining. I want my writing to be entertaining. So I'm trying to figure out that balance between pleasing others and doing something artistic. And sometimes I don't quite know where where the line is. Um, but I feel like with your business and with your book, you're you're saying things exactly and doing things exactly how you wanted to do them. And I think that's hard to know. There's so many layers of, oh my gosh, when I'm 16 years old, this girl didn't like me and I had to wear all these masks to get someone to like me. And I, 30 years later, I still feel that way. Hmm. Interesting. Well, some of that I think is just being considerate, right? That you could, at any given moment, you you could hit record on your mic and you could say, you know, hey, everybody, welcome to the show. Uh, Instead of having a guest today, I'm just going to sit here for an hour and a half and just talk about whatever's on my mind today. 
and you could go there with no script and it would be completely authentic, but it would be completely indulgent and completely boring to others. So right. I think it's actually considerate to shape your message in such a way, to edit yourself first, um, not being fake, but just being considerate, right? So, so for example, a few times people have asked my advice on, on giving TED Talks and, and here it is. Here's my advice in five seconds is to just cut out everything that isn't surprising. Because I love that p- people watch TED Talks in order to learn something, and if they're not surprised, they're not learning, right? Like if you're just telling them, "Well, this and I this, and I grew up here, and I got this story," that you haven't you haven't surprised them, you haven't made their eyebrows go up, right? So they haven't really learned anything. So instead, if you look at look at whatever message you want to give, whatever story you want to tell, and then just erase every single line of it that isn't surprising. And what you're left with is a short, succinct, surprising thing that somebody can actually learn from. So that's why my book is only 88 pages. <laughs> it's because, you know, at every paragraph, I cut out everything that I felt other people say uh, that's been heard before that isn't surprising. And I just focused only on, you know, the sentences, the paragraphs that were actually surprising. Well, and that's I think you do that for your business and your book as well. So, for instance, when advertisers came to you and said, "Hey, we'd love you got the traffic. We'd love to advertise," and you said no, that's a surprising <laughs> response. A hundred percent of other ninety nine point nine percent of other businesses would say, "Sure, let's flip the switch on on advertising." Well, <laughs> that to me is like a bigger issue of like, why would you? It, uh, it's like letting somebody put a, a Coke machine in the monastery. Like, what's important to you in life? Like, really? Is it still just, is it all down to money? Like, you just want money at all costs? Like, why would you let somebody litter up your thing? I still kind of, part of the reason I hardly ever listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast is because by default, my little uh, audio player that's on my phone, it doesn't have a fast forward button for some reason. I think it's because it's the one that's built right into Firefox or whatever. It doesn't have fast forward. And a couple times I try to listen to his podcast, it's like, Fucking, fucking, fucking six minutes of goddamn fucking ads up front. Tim, why are you doing this? And I just, I don't make it past the six minutes. I'm like, I just can't sit here and listen to shilling for six minutes. And so I don't. I like, um, how, I like how you put it though, the Coke machine in the monastery. So again, it's like fueled, like what you do is fueled with authenticity, just like a monastery is supposed to be, you know, as authentic as possible to, to belief and you know, being spiritual and so on, whether it is or isn't, I don't know, but that's that's <laughs> the idea. And of course, you're not going to put a Coke machine in a monastery. That wouldn't be authentic to it. And it's it still, to me, boils down to authenticity in everything you do. And and I think that's a big theme of, of your book, well, even though it's not explicitly stated. Which brings me to the question, why, given that this is, you know, sort of advice or lessons for a new kind of entrepreneur, which is the subtitle, why did you leave out the chapters that made you cry. <sighs> because you're driving people to the point where you cried. I know, it was very unaltature of me, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I just think, I looked at it and it felt like this is just me being, this isn't useful to anybody else. This was my one weird situation. I don't think this is universal. This was like a really weird thing that happened where because of the unique situation I had where I had like a a bunch, I had 85 people all between the ages of 20 and 26, basically. Um, And it just created this weird little perfect storm of uh, 
this anti-pattern of culture, and uh, that that was just kind of. I didn't think that there was a universal lesson in there so much, or I I hadn't extracted a universal lesson from that other than you know a rotten apple really does spoil the barrel. That when I looked back at at what made the culture so bad there in the end, it was like this beautiful culture for eight years. It was a great place to work. Um, and then just something changed and it turned awful. And I, when I look back, it really was just a couple rotten apples, like just a couple people that spoiled the, the barrel. It's funny because um, I call that, so, so I had a similar situation in, in a business I started and I call that uh, the virus. And as soon as, mm. as soon as you see the virus appear, you have to immediately eliminate it because otherwise yeah. it spreads in the stairwells, it spreads in the lunches or the, <laughs> yes. or the coffees, and then everybody has the virus and you can't, you, 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 you can't kill yourself. You, you, you're too late. So you, 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 you did summarize this in this, in the chapter title, which is delegate, but don't abdicate. Right, right. I kind of, well, I found a very nice diplomatic way to just kind of, I hinted at that. I didn't dive into it. it didn't dive into the woe is me thing too much. But you know what's kind of sweet, by the way? Um, a few years after the book came out, one of the guys that worked for me in customer service um, named Dan, he's now a guitar teacher in Idaho. And he's actually opened up his own music shop where he's got a couple people working for him. And I hadn't heard from him in years. Uh, I hadn't heard from anybody, you know, I sold the company in 2008 and it was kind of like, you know, sorry, I'm sticking my middle finger in the air right now. It was like, <laughs> fuck you guys, I'm never speaking to you again. And they never spoke to me again. I never spoke to them again. That was just, it was bad blood at the end. And so here I get this email from Dan years later saying, hey, I don't know if you remember me. I used to work for you at CD Baby. Well, now I'm this guitar teacher and I have a few people working for me. And he said, suddenly I realized how hard it is to be a boss and be a manager and it's really hard and they try to like blame me for all of their problems in life. And he said, it made me realize we really did that to you, didn't we? He said, I'm so sorry. He said, I don't know what came over us. I don't know why all of a sudden we just decided you were the bad guy. He said that there was a weird kind of mom mentality that happened at the time that I didn't even notice it at the time. But now that i am got employees myself, he said, I just want to say I'm sorry. I don't know why we treated you like that. And I was like, Aww. That's great that you got that email because I think a greater than 1% response from your ex-employees is, you know, a thousand percent more than anyone else gets. So <laughs> yeah, that's that great really that nice he recognized him. that. You know, you, you said another thing very interesting, and I've been dealing with this a little bit. When people are either your customers or your employees, they feel very strongly that they know you and that you kind of should do or, or conform to some behavior that they expect. And you have this chapter about excluding people. And it's a very healthy reminder that you can't, you know, there's that saying, you know, if you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing nobody. If you try to please everybody yeah. all the time, you end up pleasing nobody no, all of the time or none of the time. Or I don't know. Some quote <laughs> like that. <laughs> give, give a man a fish and he'll... Something, uh, yeah, something is fed. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> right. Um, so, so I think it's a very healthy reminder in building a business that you're not going to be a monopoly of the world, you know, and of every constituency of your business. You, you can't do that. Even if your job is to please the people you want to please, you just can't do it. There's going to be this vocal minority that hates you, and your key, your job then is to exclude them from what you do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think you've talked about this before, this idea that you know, on your blog you might get 99 nice comments and then you get one negative one and it's human nature to look at that one and go, hey, 
hey, what the hell? <laughs> Why isn't every single person happy? And you focus so much on the one person that's not happy with what you do. But yeah, it's, you find that you can, well, again, music is a good role model. Music that tries to please everybody is what? It's, it's elevator music, right? And the, right. the way that you make great music is by doing something that somebody's going to hate. You take a chance, you push it to some new extreme, you say something in a way that some people might find offensive, but a few will find extremely refreshing and honest and real. So, and I bet the que- one of the questions that you got in among these 6,500 6, questions that you've gotten in this past month or so is, I'm afraid to take that chance of, of being myself, being authentic, saying what I really feel because of, you know, maybe a boss won't like me or my colleagues won't like me or a future employer won't like me or future customers won't like me. That's a big fear for people. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. Now I know I've never said this publicly before. By the way, I, I'll, actually, I, I meant to tell you this when we first said hello. This is the last interview I'm gonna do for a long time. In fact, uh, when I did, so my my book called Anything You Want was re-released in August, and so I did a whole ton of interviews from uh, August to December. And then I did Tim Ferriss's in December, and I said, that's it, no more, that was exhausting, I am done. And I told my assistant, uh, like, that's it, no more interviews. And she said, you want me to say no to everybody? I said, yeah, everybody. I said, wait, except James Altschuler. That's funny. If I hear from him, absolutely, I I want to do that one. And then like a week later, you emailed. I was like, aw. That's excellent. The timing was right. So this is for real this time. This is like my last interview for a long time. And um, so here's a here's a very embarrassing story. Like this this is one of those classic like altitude kind of things. Like I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm about to. These are the only <laughs> stories <laughs> <laughs> um, that there was this girl I knew once that was an aspiring entrepreneur, very ambitious, um, but not yet so successful. And she was a, a good friend of mine, but also really looked up to me. Um, and she said, like, I don't know, she just noticed that nothing bothers me, right? Like, I never get mad. I never get too upset. And she's like, how can I be as carefree as you? Like, nothing bothers you. How do you do that? How do you just let everything roll off your back? And I thought about it for a bit. And you started and I, crying. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it for a bit, and I was like, hmm. Well, first you get a million dollars. That helps. She just, she just thought that was the funniest thing, but like that was the real answer, and we're not supposed to say that. And and again, maybe I'm giving this contrarian advice because I feel that I'm surrounded by people that say that money doesn't matter. Or is like, you know, okay, maybe if I was working on Wall Street, I might be saying money doesn't matter. But in my world, I'm surrounded by people that say that money doesn't matter, and so I feel my contrarian need to say, actually, it really helps. Um, and that's a big, it's, I feel it's like a big reason I feel so comfortable in not needing to please others uh, is this feeling of like, yeah, it's, it's, there's a reason they call it FU money, right? It's like, I don't need anybody. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need anything from anyone. And I don't need you. And I, I really, I don't know, that's a big part of it. I highly recommend, if you were somebody that was thinking of uh, perhaps getting rich and not sure whether you should or not, I highly recommend it. Well, and the thing is, you, this really is like a guidebook. Uh, again, I'm going to get back to the the, the beginning, which is t- tr- it took you 12 years of testing different ideas, doing things for yourself, figuring out the right favor, 
you could do for yourself that other people would then ask for that then scaled into a business. And that's how, that really is the way to make a million dollars. This is if, if you do a million favors and you do it in a way that's scalable, then bam, you have it. Right, and they're, you're right, exactly. And they're different, they're different methods. I think that, you know, uh, Ramit Sethi and all the kind of like, I will teach you to be rich and all the things that are out there uh, teaching you how to make a lot of money, most of them are correct if you actually follow through. Uh, there was, um, who's this guy? Oh my God, why am I forgetting his name right now? Um, ah, oh well, a friend of mine, I, I can't remember his name right now. He's, he was the president of, uh, Ian Rogers, president of Top Spin, said that there was this fitness book that um, LL Cool J put out years ago. It was like the LL Cool oh, yeah, J yeah, I remember that. Guide, guide to Fitness. And Ian Rogers actually went through the whole book and actually followed to the letter and did absolutely everything he said to do and ate exactly what he was supposed to eat. And then one day later, like met LL Cool J and he said, I actually did your book. And <laughs> like LL was like, I have never met somebody that actually did my book before. He said, lots of people read it. They do it half-assed. They do a little bit of it. They tell me, oh, good book, man. I, I really want to do that someday. He said, he said, you really did it? You really did everything in it? He said, to the letter. He said, man, like no wonder you're in good shape. And So it worked. I think that about a lot of those programs that are out there that say like, if you do this, you will make a lot of money. And I'll bet that most of them work if you actually do it. You know, instead of just think that you should and mean to get around to it someday. But anyway, sorry, I think that was a tangent on something no, else we were no, talking about. No, I but I think that's true. And I think for you, it was the being authentic to what you were interested in, being authentic to being happy, but also kind of sticking to uh, this core idea. You you mentioned it throughout the book, which is that your your customers are always going to come first before any expansion, before any standard ideas of how to make a business bigger, before raising money, before an IPO. You stuck you stuck to this authentic value that was important to you, which is that you wanted to sell music and you wanted a, a, a in as a conflict-free as possible way for other musicians to, to sell music. And I think that was what was scalable as opposed to, yeah, let's get advertising, let's, you know, sign up with, you know, Universal or whoever and you do these things that would cut corners for you. Well, I guess it often helps to say, to start a sentence with, uh, in a perfect world, dot, 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 you know, how would it look? So I think that's where a lot of those things came from. It's like, well, in a perfect world, how would this work? Like, of course, there would be no advertising. In a perfect world, there would be no paid placement. So anybody had just as much of a shot to be on the front page as anybody else. So you would not be allowed to, to buy up the front page. In a perfect world, I'd get paid every week. In a perfect world, I'd know the full name and address of everybody who buys my music. In a perfect world. So, you know, even though I'm saying all of this stuff and, and acting like I'm taking credit for it, you got to admit that I could have just been some guy with all of these philosophies and some store that, that didn't go well. Um, a huge reason it got successful, it was just the damn luck of right place at the right time. It was, it was late 1997, beginning of 1998, and there were no other online music stores at the time. And so my little rinky-dink thing with, that was ugly and amateurish looking just was, I was the guy on the surfboard when the huge wave came in, you know? Um, it, I just rode the wave. It was amazing timing. I couldn't have done it a year before or a year later. Well, and so, so now coming towards the end of your book here, how do you grade yourself now? To me, it's how much I create. Um, 
yeah, it's that thing that I said earlier about learning for the sake of creating, for the sake of learning, for the sake of creating. Like ultimately, the the guy, the the measurable thing um, is how much I'm creating. Uh, maybe because I won't let myself just keep creating without learning something. So, to me, I I need to measure my output for my own personal measure of success. Um, I can't imagine just learning things without using what I'm learning to create. So, what are you working on now? Um, When's the uh, next book? I, you know, I might. Um, you got to do another know. book. I love this oh, book I, so much. You, you're oh, like the Zen you. master of like entrepreneurship <laughs> writing. But maybe there's other things you could be the the Zen master of. Well, you know what's funny? Did you read Smart Cuts by Shane Snow? I've read it. Shane's been on the pod. The second I read it, by the way, it was like six in the morning. I wrote Shane and said, "You got to come on my podcast today." Oh, good. Uh, that book punched me in the gut. I loved that book. Um, hey, wait, you know what else I've been meaning to ask you forever? In, in I, I, was it Power of No or Choose Yourself? In one of your books, you said something like, pick a subject that you would read a hundred books on that subject, yeah, right? Yeah, so I say, go into the bookstore, which section will you read the entire section of? And, and that's what you're, that could help you find out what you're interested in. So have you actually read a hundred books on a single subject? Oh, yeah. I've really? read, I've read like, a thousand books on a single subject. Come on, no exaggeration. Really, a thousand books? Yeah. Like for instance, um, I love I love games, so I'll read. I've read at least a thousand books on chess, for instance. Really? Yeah. A thousand? You're not exaggerating. You're no. not like okay. It's you're not going to look back. Okay, well, it's actually 180, but it felt like a thousand. No, no, no. Count. Ever since I was 18, I'm 48 now. I read you know 100 books a year on chess, maybe more. Wow. All right. So that's an example. <laughs> now I can't be the, do that professionally, but but perhaps there's other ways to act professionally. You can program a chess computer, or you can uh, uh, write books yourself, or you could uh, organize tournaments or whatever. I don't know. I read I read probably several hundred books on poker as well. All right. Well, I will just leave my jaw over there on the ground, and I'll try to keep talking. <laughs> I'm sure you've um, read. I'm sure you've read or gone through a hundred books on music. No, no. What about uh, like even like um, books of um, oh god, the word escapes me, and it's the most common word in the world. You know where they no where they have the notes, <laughs> pages where they have notes. <laughs> oh, sheet music, right, sheet music, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Every book I've read since two thousand seven is up on my website. If your listeners, this is something I was doing for myself privately, and then realized like oh, you know, there's no reason to keep this private on my hard drive. I should share this with the world. So. Every time I read a book, I read it with, if it's a paper book, I read it with a pen in my hand, underlining the, uh, the sentences I like. And then I would open up a, a, a raw text file afterwards and I would type in every sentence I liked from that book so that I could just freely give the book away or just not worry about the book ever again and know that I had saved in a nice searchable format, just plain text file, all the best bits I love from that book because I really wanted to get them into my soul. You know, I wanted to memorize what I had learned. And um, now the Kindle makes that even easier. So I put them up on my site at uh, sivers.org slash book. I, I highly Whoa. recommend that page, by the way. I've read most of the books on that page. You definitely have a passion for entrepreneurship and high-concept thinking, like anti-fragile and so on. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a great list of books. Okay, so Shane Snow, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. One of his points that punched me in the gut in the middle of that book, it was a great book all around, but there was one point that just, it was a little toss-away sentence that he said something like the the business you're in 
might not be the business you think you're in. You need to look at what people are really responding to. And he used the example, I think, of of Flickr, I think it was, that it started out as something else, but then they noticed that everybody was using their engine to to share photos, and they realized, hmm, I think we're actually in a different business than we thought we were in. So when I read that sentence, I had to kind of like stop and put the book down and think for a while, that I've been calling myself a programmer for the longest time. Like when people say, what do you do? Uh, I say, I'm a programmer. It's, it's actually part of my way of just shutting down the conversation so I don't have to get into the what do I do kind of thing. If you say programmer, right. most people just go, oh. Right. You know, and if they can actually talk programming, well, then I do actually want to talk to them. Uh, so, but when I think about that, nobody is responding to my programming. Nobody cares about the stuff. Even with CD Baby, it's like, yes, I did all of the programming all myself for CD Baby, but it was just some barely functional e-commerce store. It was actually all of the words around it. It was all of my talking that I was doing in, in my newsletters and, and blog posts and speaking at conferences. Those were the reasons that people really signed up to CD Baby was because of all the talking I was doing around it. It's like, wow, actually, what people really respond to is my writing. So, wow, what if I'm actually a writer? That's, oh, I'd never thought about that before. I'd always just considered that writing was just some little thing I did on the side to share what I'd learned. But I'm really a programmer, but I think I might need to flip that. I think maybe I'm really a writer, and programming is something I enjoy tinkering with, the way that somebody enjoys tinkering with their car, you know, the old Corvette in the driveway idea, right? So, um, but then then my thinking was flipped around this uh, twice because I don't earn any money writing. I mean, maybe I could if I really tried, but my only income comes from investing. So it's like, well, does that mean I'm really an investor that likes writing? I was like, I don't know. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts on how do you define, do you define yourself based on what gets the biggest response or where your money is coming from or just what you like doing the most? I totally define it on what I like doing the most with the idea that I also have to think of what feeds me and my family. But uh, the writing is what I love. Like you ask, uh, uh, what's a hundred or a thousand books that I've read? I've certainly read a thousand good novels or collections of short stories in order to improve my writing. This is the thing I think about all day long and care about the most. Mm. I used to go on, I was like you, I had something, like you had CD Baby. I used to go on and I made financial websites. I used to go on CNBC and talk about stocks and finance. But I realized almost everybody on these shows is just talking BS. And I just (laughs) wanted to, and here I am, you know, going through constantly anxiety about money and all these things, despite being a so-called, you know, expert like everyone else on CNBC about money. So I just wanted to write the truth and be, and this is where I was authentic. And, and, and I wanted to write it well through stories. That's how I got the greatest satisfaction for myself. Like you said, though, before it helps to be doing things that, that have made you money and make you money and investing certainly helps that. But I never think about my investments. That's where I've I've delegated and I've abdicated. I I hate right. thinking about it. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. I thought it was still kind of a, a side passion of yours because you you still talk about it a lot. I, I talk about it because I know a lot about it. Um, okay. And so I feel like bad when other people make mistakes that way. And I could just say from my experience, oh, look, here's when I tried to raise money from Bernie Madoff. So, you know, right. that's a story, but it's a story where I made a, a potential mistake and, you know, I use it to help other people not make mistakes through, through storytelling. 
Interesting. Yeah, I can relate. The the entrepreneur thing, or even let's just say talking about CD Baby, I'm I personally wish I never had to talk about it ever again. I mean, part of the reason I put out that book was to kind of close the chapter on that phase of my life and say, okay, here's all the lessons I learned from that. I'm done. So it's kind of funny when years later, um, people will invite me to speak at a conference and I'll say yes. And I'll think that I get to just get up there and talk about whatever I want. And then after I've said yes, and they've put me on the program, they say, really, we want you to talk about how you <laughs> you built and grew and sold CD Baby. And I think, oh, fuck, really? And I think, okay, well, that's, that is what the crowd wants. Okay, I'll do it one more time. So. But, but entrepreneurship is so, people want the XYZ technique, but the reality is, and I think you kind of refer to this in your book in a lot of ways, it's very personal and very psychological how to build a business. Like, it's, it's difficult. And people don't realize it's not about where you put the Facebook ad. It's about where you change yourself in order to deal with all these psychological problems that come up. I th- you know, I thought you were going to make that into a Hollywood line there. It's not about where you put the Facebook <laughs> ad. It's about where you put your heart. <laughs> Maybe I uh, yeah, almost so- said that. Thank God I did. <laughs> um, so... Uh- I love that as a as a songwriter. I think actually, but you know, so I spent fifteen years of my life as a songwriter, and I still think it it shapes the way that I think about words. You know, you oh. think of the kind of the symmetry of words. And well, you, having a re- you said it earlier. You were you were telling me a story, and you started off with there was a girl I once knew, <laughs> and <laughs> that's totally the beginning of like a song. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, what was it? Um, Kevin Kelly once gave a talk where he said. Um, he said, "It's we should focus on making a living, not on uh, making uh, something huge or something like that." And I, I emailed him afterwards. I was like, "Kevin, Kevin, you missed the line. It's it's about making a living, not making a killing." Uh, and he goes, "Oh, thank you. That's awesome. I want to use that." Oh my god, that? that's great. Like, of course, it's like look, you, you're, I'm always looking for those little symmetry of of words. It's just the, the songwriter in me still. Okay, anyway, well, uh, well I want to I want to close with this because this is the line that I've inadvertently stolen from you, and I only know this by accident because people keep retweeting me saying it, but it's actually just want to give you full credit for it, which is the quote: "If it's not a hell yeah, then it's a no." <laughs> Like yeah. I see it all the time. I'm tweeted as saying it, but it's totally you. And I don't know I how st- I got to say it, but it's your saying. I still, you know, and I'll give full credit. It, my songwriter friend Amber Rubarth came up with that one day when I was wrestling with a decision on whether to go off to this conference in Australia. I was living in Union Square in New York City, and I had agreed to or told a friend that I'd go with her to a conference in Australia. Once it actually came close, I was like, oh, God, I don't know. And I was, I was describing my decision-making process to her, and she said, it sounds like you're not trying to decide between yes and no. To you, it really comes down to either fuck yeah or no. I said, yes, that's it. It's either fuck yeah or no. So there's my full credit is, is Amber Rubarth came up with that. And it, so I wrote it up on my blog as fuck yeah or no. And then at the last minute, I decided to make it more PG-13 and I changed the fuck to a hell. So yeah, hell yeah <laughs> or no. And you know what's nice, man, is that one of the nice things about sharing your philosophies publicly and writing things on your blog all the time is that your friends echo your own philosophies back at you. So I, I'm not kidding. Just yesterday, I was trying to make a pretty big decision in life. And I called a friend to ask her thoughts. And she said, well, hmm. she listened to me and said, well, 
A smart guy I knew once said something called a hell yeah or no. <laughs> and I think you need to be taking that advice right now. It's like, oh my God, you're right. Wait, what was, what was the big decision? Can you tell us? Um, Just a little. It was, uh, I had, a, I had, I have, as of this minute, a, a business in Belgium that I started in Belgium because it made me a legal resident of Belgium, which then in five years leads to citizenship. And I was doing it, but then that for the last two years, I've had this uh, wood egg business running in Belgium, but I hate it. I, you know, the, the, the business just doesn't need to be alive anymore. It's nothing the public needs. Uh, I don't believe in forcing something on people and, and I believe in, you know, shutting it down if people don't want it. And yet I was keeping it active just to kind of keep the Belgium government happy. And, uh, I was asking a friend's advice and she said like, yeah, you're giving me a bunch of reasons why you could and should keep it active, but I can tell you're not feeling hell yeah about it. And just the fact that this thing is sitting in your life, taking up any mental space, it, it's, you're violating your fuck yeah or no rule. I said, oh yeah, that, that's, that was the decision moment. Like once she said that, I was like, that's it. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Like I'm, I'm not psyched about this thing, so why should I do it? So yeah, I'm I'm in the process of shutting it down right now, which means I'll no longer be a Belgium resident, which is a little sad. I love Belgium, but oh well. But you know what? I think um, it reminds me actually of a Warren Buffett uh, quote, which is his 525 rule. So list the 25 things you most want to do in life. Now separate out the first five from the last 20. The last 20 are still things you really want to do in life, but they're below the top five. And then his point is, Never ever look at that bottom twenty again, because yes. they because even though you really want to do them, you don't want to do them as much as that top five, and they will always distract from the top five. I saw Ray Dalio in a interview uh, say something similar. I doubt he came up with it. I think it's conventional wisdom, but it says you can have pretty much anything you want in this life. You can have it. You just can't have everything you want. You need to prioritize. Yeah. I love that. That is that good. Powerful. And so, so Derek, I really want to hang out. You, you got to look me up next time you're in New York City. Yeah, look me up when you're in New Zealand. Which is never <laughs> going to happen. That's not my hell yeah. <laughs> no, honestly, I will, I will be in New York in a couple months. So um, I'll let you know. I miss it. Uh, Excellent. I, I, have, so, I have three pianos in my apartment. So you could, you're more than welcome to hang uh, out and play one of them or all of them. So Okay. So the last thing I'm going to leave you with, and like I said, this is my last interview for a long, long time. So for one last time, I'm going to do something that people think I'm a little crazy for doing, is I'm going to give your listeners my email address, which is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S dot org, O-R-G. And I do this because for years at conferences, I used to when I was running CD Baby, I would go to all these music conferences and I'd bring a big stack of a few hundred business cards and any person that asked, I would give them my business card. And so I would know how many I gave away. And I would often give away like say 100, 200 business cards at conferences to musicians that wanted something from me. And then I would notice that like, nobody would email. I'd get like one follow-up from the entire conference. And like most people don't follow up. It's amazing. And the people that do often, I get these emails where people go like, oh, I don't know, I'm sure you're busy and I, I hate to be bothering you. And they're so apologetic, like, you know, how dare they bother me? But the thing is, you know, I wasn't coming on your show to like pitch my book 
I don't care about. I'm hoping I'm going to make another eight dollars if I sell a hundred books. You know, um, so I really just do it for the people I meet. Like that's. I mean, honestly, I've been wanting to talk to you forever because you're just one of my favorite thinkers. Thank so, you. So this was an honor to finally chat with you. But you know, the main reason I, instead of just making this a personal call, the main reason we're doing this public is for the people I meet. So yeah, if you have any questions for me, or just want to say hi and introduce yourself. Send me an email. Well, I encourage people to write you because your book so much fits into the category of what I call a choose-yourself book, career, vision, and so on. That's why I wanted to talk to you. So I hope people email you. Thank you. And I'll let you know when I'm in New York. Excellent, Derek. Thanks so much. <laughs> See ya. Talk to you soon. Bye. Goodbye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.